Dr. Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. There's been a lot of other podcasts about this subject recently, but it's been in the forefront of a lot of news articles, and it's something that we may continue to see. So I wanted to get my favorite resident pulmonologist, Dr. Heather Hoke Kaiser, back on the podcast. She had just talked with us about vaping, and after we recorded, there started to be a lot of news reports about eValley. Now that there's some more information about it, I wanted her to review what it is, how to diagnose it, and what to watch out for. I also wanted to know from her, is this an epidemic that we are likely to continue to see, or have we already peaked because there's been some fairly immediate manufacturer changes based on some suspicious chemicals? So I'll wrap up at the end, but let's hear what Heather has to say. So um, my name is Heather Hope Kaiser, and I am an assistant professor of pulmonology at Children's Hospital Colorado. And Heather was recently on the podcast to talk about an overview of vaping because I knew nothing about it. And in between when we recorded that and now, there's been a big upswing in our awareness uh, and interest in vaping-associated lung injury. And so I wanted Heather, actually Heather offered to come back and talk about this and give us a an idea of what this condition is and who we should be looking for it in, and then some way to, to parse it out from all of the other things that we're seeing that might look similar. So Heather, let I guess let's just jump in. Can you, can you give me an overview of what terms we're using, or do we have a name for this thing? Absolutely. So the most recent term and the one that the CDC has been using, so that's been the one that we have been using, is EVALI. It's E-V-A-L-I. And what that stands for is e-cigarette or vaping product use associated lung injury. And it's kind of a broad term for a reason because we're still kind of investigating exactly what this lung injury looks like, what products are involved, and the extent of the damage that we're seeing. Uh, I'll refer you back to the, the last podcast for all the terminology surrounding vaping and, and vaping products. Does this seem like it's currently going to be the, the generally accepted term if, if you're looking for research papers about it or articles like this is this is the abbreviation that most people are using right now. Yes, I agree. I think if you're looking for um, any papers that came out at the very beginning of this outbreak, you might want to search something about vaping-associated lung injury. But really, ever since um, the CDC identified this as kind of the terminology, we've really been using eValley as the terminology that we're using. On the CDC question, can you give us maybe a, a timeline or, or when, when did cases start to get picked up and what are we looking at right now maybe as far as prevalence or where we're seeing it and what sort of research has been done. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. It really seemed to kind of reach a peak sometime about this last fall, so fall of 2019. So according to the CDC, they first started actually having cases reported, you know, sometime around March of 2019. And then there really seemed to be this big uptake starting around um, late summer, so about June or July of 2019, and then a peak somewhere around September 15th of 2019 was really when they saw the majority of the cases. And then now they've slowly been starting to taper off. And so we're seeing much fewer cases now reported to the CDC than previously. A relatively recent phenomena that had a big peak this year. Who were the patients that, that were presenting? The data that we have seen has shown that um, the majority of the patients were under the age of 35. So about 78% of patients were under the age of 35, a median age of about 24 years and a range from anywhere from 13 to 77 years. So really broad range of patient population. And does that seem to mirror just the general numbers on who is using vaping products? Yeah, I would say that's definitely true. One of the things that you know may have surprised us a little bit is we didn't see potentially many more patients in the pediatric population. So yeah, I would say it's, it's generally 
generally that that group that we're seeing use these kinds of devices the most. And so I think that makes sense that in the under 35s is where we saw this the most, but certainly there was quite a range. Okay. What kind of symptoms is it or, or what what is this condition? Is there some sort of agreed upon case definition? So that is something that is still kind of in flux as we are learning more and more about this um, about this disease. We're learning more about what the actual case definition might be. However, there has been some suggested case definitions and there's a, a paper in the New England Journal that suggested a case definition based on a case series out of the Midwest that basically said if you have a use of an e-cigarette or dabbing or vaping, really any kind, um, 90 days before the symptom onset, if you have pulmonary infiltrates, um, usually bilateral on a plain film or ground glass opacities on a CT chest, and the absence of a pulmonary infection on initial workup. So that, you know, really means, you know, extensive workup, including respiratory viral panel, influenza testing, looking for HIV-related opportunistic infections if appropriate, and some urine antigen testing. So basically a pretty extensive infectious workup. If that's negative, and then there's no evidence in the medical record of alternative plausible diagnoses like cardiac diseases, rheumatologic diseases, neoplastic diseases, then then, you know, that really indicates that this may be a confirmed case of eValley. But it really does require a lot of clinical acumen. And what it really requires is asking the question, which is something that I think we're getting much better at. But really any patient that's coming in with respiratory disease now should be asked, you know, yeah, have you vaped or dabbed? Or what, what kind of symptoms are, are we seeing? Are these, are these isolated respiratory symptoms? Are they, do they include more constitutional or, or GI type things? Uh, yeah, actually, we're seeing a, a variety of things. So the CDC has come out with a management algorithm, and they are having us look for symptoms such as fever, cough, sore throat, shortness of breath, muscle aches, headaches, fatigue, nausea, or vomiting. So as you can see, it's kind of a, a broad variety of symptoms, yeah, both cool. respiratory. So like, like every other patient I'm seeing right now. <laughs> exactly, which makes it very challenging. But it's it's really respiratory, GI, and constitutional symptoms yeah. um, kind of across the board. And is my understanding that, that most of the patients that this has been diagnosed on those are the patients that have been sick enough to wind up in the hospital and get that extensive infectious workup. So is there a chance that there's there's more mild cases that we're seeing and that are just getting diagnosed as your run-of-the-mill respiratory illness that, that we're not picking up? I think absolutely that's a possibility. Um, I think there's a lot of patients who may be flying under the radar with more uh, subclinical disease. You know, the other thing that I wonder about, and, and we don't, you know, have any good evidence to support this yet, but certainly it's an area that's continuing um, to be researched, is in patients who are vaping, but maybe they do have an infectious disease or rheumatologic disease or something like that, is the vaping actually worsening the course of their disease too? So, you know, we, they wouldn't fall into this true eValley category because we find another reason for their respiratory problems. But if they're vaping on top of that, is that actually worsening their outcomes? So I think that's a, a next step um, in the epidemiologic research process is to find out, is that potentially something that's going on as well? I, I guess the thing I'm struggling with the most is what's the approach, especially for somebody like me who might be the first person seeing this. If I've got a kid in front of me who has, we, we know that they are a vaping product user and they have a new respiratory disease that, that doesn't seem to fit like a run-of-the-mill case or maybe has more severe infiltrates than I would have expected. And I, I start thinking, could this be eValley? How do I go about getting to that diagnosis or getting them to the point where it's time to bring somebody like you in? You know, if you have a patient that arrives with those signs and symptoms, the first most important thing is to ask them about whether or not they're using e-cigarette or vaping products. And it, it may sound like a no-brainer, but that's something that's really important and has been missing in our clinical evaluations for some time. So it's really important to first ask the question. 
You can do an initial clinical assessment like pulse oximetry and vital signs, focused history and physical exam, and evaluating for other possible etiologies, and then determine if they're a candidate for outpatient management. So, you know, are they are their O2 saturations okay? Are they having respiratory distress? Any comorbidities that might compromise their pulmonary reserve? Um, and really an important one is do they have reliable access to care, strong social support, and the ability to follow up within 24 to 48 hours um, with a PCP? Because one of the things that is truly, you know, very scary about this disease is that it can rapidly progress and become deadly very rapidly. So that closed clinical follow-up piece is really important. But if you determine that they are a good candidate for outpatient management, one of the things you can do is consider getting a chest x-ray and then consider that viral testing. So particularly for influenza, but respiratory viral panel type testing. And then the management would be obviously tell them to discontinue their use of e-cigarettes or vaping products. There is some folks that are using corticosteroids in this disease. The CDC recommends consider corticosteroids with caution is how they say it. This is a super um, helpful recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, basically that, that with caution, you know, question comes with, do you, are you, how sure are you that there's not something else going on? And there's not a lot of great data out there yet about um, corticosteroids, but there has been some anecdotal evidence that they may be helpful. Are there any other testing parameters that seem to be associated with E-Valley? And I, I'm wondering, is this a disease that seems to elevate inflammatory markers or is a CBC helpful? I think I saw somewhere that some of these cases have mild transaminitis. I just don't know if any of that is specific enough that it's useful in determining the diagnosis. From that case series that was done in the Midwest, um, there have been some clinical laboratory findings that have been associated. But again, I would say interpret these with caution because that was from one case series and these could certainly change as we learn more and more about really what we should call a clinical case. Um, but in that case series, there was 87% that had leukocytosis with an elevated white cell count, typically a neutrophil predominance, and about 93% had an increased SED rate greater than 30. They also noted mild transaminitis, hyponatremia, and hypokalemia in some patients as well. So all, all relatively generic and, and don't don't sl make it a slam dunk either way. Yes, yeah. exactly. All right, kind of as expected. Let's maybe say you've got a sicker kid in front of you, somebody who is going to need to be admitted for respiratory support in some fashion. Wh what's the next steps? And my specific questions are, do these patients need bronchoscopy? Uh, do they need some sort of advanced chest imaging? And do you think there's a place for even more infectious disease testing? Like, do we need to be looking at these cases for HIV or Legionella or, you know, some of the other maybe less common infections that could also present with a whole lot of these symptoms and pulmonary infiltrates? If you have decided that a kid needs to, or, or an adult for that matter, needs to be um, evaluated for inpatient clinical evaluation, you know, a, a chest x-ray is helpful, but a CT chest also may be helpful if that chest x-ray is abnormal. Again, we're seeing, you know, mostly bilateral infiltrates around glass opacities, things like that, and that may help to guide your management a little bit. You, you brought up the question of bronchoalveolar lavage, and you know, that certainly has been something. The early findings were that there was a lot of lipid-laden macrophages on bronchoalveolar lavage. Some of the later pathology findings have said, well, maybe this isn't as much of a lipoid pneumonia as we thought it was. Again, this, this is all kind of in flux right now. So I think bronchoscopy can be used with caution. There's some debate in the pulmonary community about the utility of bronchoscopy in these patients. You know, 
we want to make sure that we get an appropriate diagnosis without actually causing harm. So making sure that your patient is stable enough for bronchoscopy because they have seen that, that people have had some um, you know, prolonged ventilation requirements and things like that afterward. And so, you know, in, in terms of the more extensive workup, I think to truly meet a case definition as suggested by the group in Wisconsin, really truly do have to do an extensive infectious evaluation. They said um, respiratory viral panel, influenza, PCR, and then other respiratory testing, including urine antigen testing for strep pneumonia and Legionella, sputum culture if they have a productive cough, a BAL culture if it's done, blood culture, and presence of HIV-related opportunistic respiratory infections. And that's been some of the um, criticism that has happened with some of our case definitions in other series is not all of that extensive testing has been right. done in every patient, so you can't you know, sometimes definitively say there wasn't something um, infectious going on. So I think that's where we're still really working out the kinks of finding out how we really define these cases and what to what degree you need to do that kind of testing. Right now, the CDC management website basically is saying that for sure consider influenza testing and viral testing and then consult with specialists and right. consult with the CDC, consult with your local health department, find out what kind of testing they're recommending for their case definitions as well. Because ultimately, you know, if you do find out that a patient has eValley, it's it, you're going to have to talk to them anyway to, to report that kind of thing. Are, are there any proposed reasons for why vaping products seem to be causing this illness, but other inhalational drugs don't uh, and, and what what is the thought of the component or the reason why certain of these cause this issue and, and others don't what I can tell you is that what we found in the data that's been submitted to the public health departments is that vitamin E acetate has been identified as a chemical of concern there's really a number of other chemicals that are still being evaluated for that THC is present in most of the samples that have been tested by the FDA and most patients report a history of THC containing e-cigarette or vaping products I say most not all but most and they the latest data suggests that THC-containing e-cigarette or vaping products, particularly from informal sources, so, you know, if you're buying from a dealer or if you're getting them from friends or family, that seems to be where the highest risk um, products are coming from, or products that have been purchased from a, a reputable place, but they are modifying them, so putting in different chemicals and things like that. The CDC has evaluated that there are certain brands of vape devices that seem to be causing more, or seem to be, I shouldn't say causing, seem to be more associated but they really vary by region as well. So it's kind of different in different parts of the country. So once they are, they're sick enough to need to be admitted to the hospital, we talked a little bit about corticosteroids. From a treatment standpoint, other than ruling out other causes, is there anything specific to do other than treat these kids like they've got an ARDS-style lung injury and manage them that way? Obviously, the biggest thing is ruling out those other causes and making sure that there's not a you know cardiac cause, there's not an infectious cause, there's not a neoplastic cause. The CDC says consider empiric use of antibiotics, antivirals, or both. And again, that may be guided by how sick the patients right. actually are. That doesn't skew too far from what you would do in a case of sudden unexplained respiratory collapse while you're figuring out a diagnosis. Exactly. So I, I think sometimes we, we have, at least in the ER, have like an internal negative reaction to just starting kids on a on an antibiotic or an antiviral without a cause, but we do it in those, this kid got sick really quickly mm -hmm. and they need a lot and we probably don't have time to wait for a definitive diagnosis. So I, I actually don't think that that's that different from maybe what our usual practice would be. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and uh, as you said, that you know, some of these kids have gotten very sick very quickly. And so I think if you if they are meeting the criteria for inpatient management, I think that's absolutely reasonable. My last wrap-up question is, given that 
albuterol fixes every pulmonary illness. Should these patients be receiving it? There is no data to suggest that albuterol is going to be helpful in these patients. But you know but what? It fixes everything. We'll, we'll keep looking no. to see. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll get you back on for an update next time there's any big research that comes out. Absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, bringing some awareness to this issue. And hopefully we'll have uh, more information to share at the next update. I am always fascinated by the awareness and response and data collection and management of emerging diseases. It's something that fascinates me because there are so many parts of our healthcare system that are broken. But when something like this starts to occur, you do see the parts that are working well. Things get reported. Cases where patients have symptoms that don't fit with what the expected disease course is, or maybe are having illnesses that are not typical for age, those get reported and followed up on. And really the only way to nail down the fact that this is happening is with national or international level data. So I'm not a shill for the government, but I do want to want to really congratulate all of the people at the CDC, public health departments, infectious disease departments, pulmonary departments, everybody that started realizing that this was a thing and that we should start monitoring for it. Who knows whether cases will continue to rise or whether they've actually already peaked. Maybe we've already figured out the cause. My suspicion is that as more and more people continue to use vaping products, we are going to see more and more cases like this until we figure out exactly what is what is going on. I know that this recording today can be a little bit frustrating because we don't have a lot of definitive data. You heard Heather use the word consider a lot, and it's because there really are not very clear recommendations for all of this. From the ER or urgent care side, I think the biggest thing we can do is think about it, ask the questions about exposures, and then treat these kids with the supportive care that you're going to have to anyway for patients that have severe lung injury or an ARDS style picture because it's going to take well after they're out of your department for it to get figured out. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of our podcasts on the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com or through your favorite podcasting platform. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or you can email me at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com. Thanks for listening today, and if you do have a second, I'd really appreciate it if you head on over to wherever you're listening today and leave a review. It really does help others find the podcast.